Um, if you have your Bibles, please turn to the book of Jonah. Today we're continuing in our teaching series in the book of Jonah. The last few weeks we've been considering the topic of extravagant love and how God is shocking. So God's shocking pursuit of rebels. And so that's what we're, we've been thinking about, pondering how God's love for you and for me is deeper, deeper than you could ever imagine. And God's love for you, his kindness, is, is bigger than even your failures. And his love, his compassion is even greater than, than your fears, than your anxiety. And our God who is glorious is constantly pursuing rebels who would run away from God, rebels like you and like me. And at this point in the story, in the book of Jonah, where, where the rebellious prophet has learned something, something that we need to learn. But you can't run away from God. He's learning this, that you can't run. Where, where can you go to avoid God's presence? You can't go anywhere. He stands beyond time and space, and he doesn't have a body how we do. He is spirit, and he sees all. He knows all, and he is eternally loving and compassionate, so then he intervenes and he pursues rebels. He loves us too much to let us run away. He brings us back. And even if he has to use unpleasant circumstances like being in the belly of a great fish, whatever that is in your life, he'll do it to bring you back. We finished chapter 2 last week and we ended with Jonah, the prophet, being spit up, vomited literally onto dry land. So let's pick up with Jonah chapter 3 and read that chapter. And so God's Spirit revealed, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he rose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published it throughout Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? May God turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Amen. Let me give you the primary truth, the main idea that is governing this entire chapter, this text here, the truth here, main idea, is that God has a plan to transform rebellious hearts into obedient hearts. This is what God does. He has a plan to transform rebellious hearts, transform them into 
obedient hearts. And we see this with the city of Nineveh. And we see it in our lives as well. That God wants to change people from the inside out. He wants to change the inner you. Now, the biblical word, it's kind of a big word. We use it here often. The word for this is called sanctification. And you see that in the Bible in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 and following. It describes this reality like this. It says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. So the word sanctify, big word, all it really means is to make holy. That's what the word means, to make holy. And so the big word sanctification, just all it describes is the process. Well, the process of what? The process of God, the Holy Spirit, slowly but surely transforming, changing us from the inside to make us more holy, to have us set apart from this sinful world around us. So it's just a process that God uses to make us more like His Son, to have character and thoughts and lives that reflect His glory. And so this is what God's Spirit does. He makes believers more like Jesus. He sanctifies us. God transforms us. And so as we'll see this morning, as we examine this text a little bit more closely, we'll see how God powerfully transformed the Ninevites and how He wants to transform you and me as well. But let me ask you a question. Why? Why does God want to do that? Why does God, why did He want to change the Ninevites and why does He want to change you and me? I mean, we, we believe that he does, but have you stopped to really think about why? Well, everything that God does has exactly one purpose. It's to display his glory. So everything that God does in creation and in redemption has that one purpose, for God to display his magnificence, his eternal perfections, his worth. That's what God does. He wants to reveal, to display his glory you see it in creation. Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaim His handiwork. And so the stars, creation itself, is revealing the glory of God. But you also see it with you and me, humans. You, you see it in, in Isaiah 43, 6 and following. He says, My sons and my daughters, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created, for my glory, whom I formed and made. And so he even made you and me for the same purpose. You exist to display God's immense worth and value and wisdom in his glory. That's why you live. He wants you to live for something greater than yourself, for his glory. So the way God designed this is, as he transforms us, and we have character that reflects his, and other people around see you, they should get a glimpse. Now, they should not get a glimpse of your selfishness, because that's easy to get a glimpse of that in us. But the way God designed it is, from when people see us, they should get a glimpse of God's holy character. So as we live, we're, we're speaking. There is a God, and He's in heaven, and He's at work, and He's at work in my life too. And so God transforms us 
so that we can then display his glory. And so here's the thing. Sometimes we ask the question, why is God doing this in my life? Anyone ever asked that question? Right? So a lot of heads nodding. No, no hands up. That's okay. Okay, one honest brother. We've all asked that question in one capacity or another. God, why? Why are you doing this? God, what is your purpose in this? You know what that is, honestly? It's kind of a silly question. It is kind of silly. Do you ever have kids? A lot of you have kids in the room. I know I do too. About to have two more. And they, and they ask you dumb questions. How do you answer that? You're like, okay, why do you ask me that? Like, I've already answered that question three times. You already know the answer. But like, they like to hear it again. And we're the same way with God. We ask questions that if we're really honest, we already have the answer. What is God doing in you? Why is he doing this? To change you. To sanctify you. God, why did you allow this? To sanctify you. God, why did this happen? To sanctify you. This is the will of God. This is the will of God that you be sanctified. And so why, why is God allowing this in your life? Or why did he? To sanctify you. To change your character. So that you can display his glory that much more. So you can experience his presence in a new and profound way. So you can have more integrity. So you can have more zeal for the gospel. So you can comfort others who have a similar affliction. In short, why is he allowing it? You already know the answer. To make you more like his son. That's why. And it's okay to ask the question. I'm being a little crass. But the truth does remain that we know why he's allowing it. I might not know the specifics, but I can tell you generally, it's for your sanctification to be more transformed. He's changing you. So God's plan is to rescue rebels just like you and me and then transform us into white-hot, burning worshipers that we're so consumed by Jesus and by enjoying him. And we're so overwhelmed by the beauty and the glory of Christ as we enter into a time of, of prayer and reading His Word and, and sensing His presence throughout the day that we're so enjoying Him that we live lives of obedience. We live lives that reflect His glory and His character. So that is what we're seeing here. So God has a plan to transform rebel hearts into obedient hearts. And so in this text, it actually is really helpful. If you look at this, and we'll look at it here together, it gives you how God does it. Well, how? How does God transform us? What are the steps that he takes to accomplish it? We're just talking about now how he uses circumstances. But let's look at what this text reveals specifically in God's, if you want to call it, transformation plan. How is he changing us? This text tells us how he does it. If we'll learn from it and apply it, then it will progress further in our sanctification, in our following Jesus, and being more like him. So God's plan to transform. There's three simple steps, one, two, and three, in this story, in this chapter. Step one, how does God change you? How did he transform your heart? Step one, with God's message. It all begins with God's word, God's message. You see it in verses one and two. Before you see transformation, how does it begin? The word of the Lord came. The word, God's message. The word of the Lord came to Jonah second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. Call out against it the message that I tell you. 
So you see here in the very beginning, their change began with the word of the Lord came, God's word, his message. And so if there's no word, if there's no message, then there's no transformation. It has to begin there. But what's incredible, which just blows my mind here, is how shocking this is, that God would speak yet again to, to this rebel Jonah. He's lovingly pursuing him, giving him a second chance. He's restored him. You know what, what's not said here? Something interesting, if you pay attention, something that's not said. God doesn't remind him of his failure. God doesn't say, now you blew it once. Now you better ship up the second time. There's no reminder of his past failures. There's just, okay, let's go do this. It's just God saying, here, arise, go to Nineveh, just like he said in chapter 1, verse 1. He doesn't remind him of his past struggles and failures. God doesn't define you by your past. He's not holding it against you. He speaks to his child and says, Jonah, my son, he speaks to you, my daughter. Come on, get up. I have a plan for you. I have a plan to display how amazing I am, and I want to use you. I want you to have the joy and the privilege of being used by me. Come on, get up. Let's go. Not looking at the past. Pressing what lies ahead and looking forward. This is grace. This is absolute mercy. That God doesn't look at your past. He's not holding it against you. We just sung, Jesus paid it all. It's paid. It's wiped clean. He says, come on, child, let's go move forward. It doesn't define who you are. He uses people just like you and me. You know what we are? Flawed messengers. That's what we are. That's what Jonah was, and that's what we are. We're flawed messengers, and so whenever God is at work, he gets all the credit, all the glory. But don't be confused. As much as he's using us as flawed people, it has to be through his word. It is the only way that change will happen. He wants to change Jonah as much as he wants to change the Ninevites, and it begins with his message, his word. You see it now in verse 3. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now what you see here is he's being obedient. He's obeying God. He's now on a path towards obedience, whereas he was running away, He's learning, and now he's following. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. And so what you're seeing here, now remember the geography. You have him in Israel. Now, we actually don't know where he got thrown up on the land. I don't know where, but if you know your Middle East map, and because we live here, you likely do, modern-day Iraq is not on the beach. It's not by the ocean. It's about 900 kilometers away from Israel on the beach. So if indeed the, the whale spit him where he started back in Israel, he still had to travel at least a month journey to get to Nineveh. Imagine every day on this journey, which was at least a month long, traveling there. Remember being in the great fish and saying, God, I just want to please you. As we'll see next week, he still had a lot to learn but he's here following and learning. 
And so he arrives at this huge city, all right? It says it's three days. So he likely went to every single gate in the entire city. He went to every single tower, every public square where they had public announcements throughout the day. He's going throughout the whole city for three days, going all around, and he's proclaiming God's word. And what is he saying? Verse 4, it says he began into the city, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Judgment is coming. Nineveh has sinned and deserves God's judgment. He is speaking truth here. And what he spoke of Nineveh is true of us, that we also have sinned and we are also rebels and we also deserve God's judgment. Eight words in the English translation, five words in Richard Hebrew, but a very brief one sentence. Now, he likely said more than just these eight words, but this short sentence summarizes the entire sermon that he preached over and over. The summary is that in 40 days, Nineveh is going to be overturned, going to be destroyed. And this is God's truth spoken through God's prophet. But remember, the main idea of this text is that God has a plan to transform rebel hearts into obedient ones. And the first step towards that transformation is focused on hearing God's word. They had to hear the truth that they needed forgiveness, that they were guilty. They needed to hear the truth of their condition, that they're not okay. It began with this message. This is the way God transforms. It is the only way. The rebellious Ninevites needed to hear God's word. There was no other way for them to be changed. They had to hear the truth. And that's still true today. If you don't have truth, you have no hope of changing. You need truth. This is the way God changes. God has always accomplished His purposes through His Word. I mean, just think about this. I can give you a lot, give you a few examples. Think about creation. How did God create? With the power of His Word, He spoke creation into being. And then if you fast forward, when you have God's people at Mount Sinai, how did he create them as his people? He spoke ten words, the Ten Commandments. They're called ten words in the original. We looked at this when we looked at Exodus a few months ago. And so he used his word to create his people there at Mount Sinai. And then Jesus is referred to in John 1 as the word of God. Why? Because Jesus is accomplishing God's plan of redemption. He's accomplishing our redemption. And so because God accomplishes everything through His Word, Jesus is called the Word of God. And then what you have as well is God's people today. It says that faith comes by hearing the Word. So we have to hear the Word, and then that's what activates, and the Spirit then takes that, and He regenerates. He brings dead souls to life, and it's through His Word. We have to hear the Word. So everything God does is always centered around His Word. And so that's how He accomplishes His purposes and creates His people through His Word. So I ask you this, do you want to change? I really mean that. Is there an area in your life where you honestly think, man, this, this area... It's got to change. You know what you need? You need God's Word. You need truth 
in your life. You need to read it, hear it, focus your thinking on it, meditate on it. You need to apply it. Now, can you try superficial change? Yes. Could you try self-help books or medication to change? Yes, you can. But is that going to give you a deep, lasting, transforming change? No. The change that God gives, his transformation, only comes from hearing his word. You have to, like the Ninevites, hear it. We need daily correction. So let me ask you this. When was the last time, and I really do mean this, when was the last time that you sat down for more than just a minute or two? I mean, give it a few minutes to sit down with God's word. And you read it slowly. Not rushed, but picked it up and read it slow. And not for information, because a lot of us that are academics, I know a lot of you in the room are, I've talked to a bunch of you, and you've, you've read this for a long time for information because you like Bible knowledge. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm saying pick this up and read it slowly for a relationship as you really think about it. Focus your thinking on Christ and experience his manifested presence in your life as you are communing with him, as you read and as you spend time meditating and, and praying. Focus. When was the last time you did that? When was the last time that you read this word and you really felt convicted over something that you need to change? I didn't say what your wife needs to change or your husband needs to, or your kids where you felt so convicted over, man, God, you need to help me with this because I can't on my own. When's the last time you read God's word slowly where you felt moved to go act on it? Not just, okay, that was great, and put it down, but felt driven, compelled to go take some sort of an action in obedience to God. If you're not reading this, you have no hope to change. Because God begins change. Step one is his message, his word. That's how he does it. This is his plan. You can ignore it, and you have the free will to ignore it, but don't expect change because this is how God has revealed. This is how he works. This is how the spirit is active through his word. And so step one to transformation is God's message. Step two that we see here is our response. And so God begins his transformation plan in our lives. One, step one is his message. Number two, our response. We see it in verse five. It says, and the people of Nineveh believed God. This is huge. They heard the message, they heard the word, and they responded how? They believed God. And the word there, the original, it refers to a trust in a relationship. Like you trust someone. You know, it's like me yesterday. I had to go to Dubai to, to pick up my new visas, I had to have to buy visas for the adoption, and I was driving back, and I was almost out of fuel, but I had to get to the embassy by 1.45, I had my appointment, Americans, you know this, it's like a three-week in advance appointment, the embassy, and I had my three weeks ago, yesterday at 1.45, and I, I was running late, because it took forever in Dubai, in traffic, and I was running out of fuel, and so I pull in, and the light is flashing at me since, like, downtown Dubai, so I'm really very tight here. And I pull in, and the door to the fuel won't open. It's broken. 
it wouldn't, it wouldn't open. And the guys are like, I'm, I'm sorry. They couldn't put fuel in. And so I have to get out of line because they're all honking at me. So I get out of line and the door won't open. It's stuck. And so then I, I take my key and I pry it and I break the door to get it open. It was jammed. And so now, and now the queue is long for, for line, for, for fuel. I'm thinking, oh, I'm never going to make my appointment. I can't go to Ethiopia next week unless I get the stamp today. And so then I said, I'll just catch the next ad knock. And so I'm driving down the road, and I see the sign that says one kilometer, and guess what happens? Uh, yeah, it dies. And so I'm like, oh, no, so frustrated. And so I'm coasting for about a full kilometer almost, and by God's grace, I actually get to the ad knock, but it like stop coasting when I still had to go uphill to get to the actual pump. And so I'm there pushing my vehicle uphill. And I'm thinking, who can I call? Who do I trust? What relationship? And I'm going through my mind on, A, who's not at work at about 1 o'clock in the afternoon. Well, everyone's at work. It's a Thursday. And then I'm thinking, well, who do I have in my phone that I trust enough that can come between Dubai and Abu Dhabi and get here like in five minutes? So I don't miss my appointment, and I'm seriously just so frustrated, and I'm just pushing up my vehicle, and this Saeed, you know, a cop, a run to cop, not really cops, but whatever, comes up, and he puts fuel, and he helps me get up to the pump, and then get fuel, and we were late, but the letter's in anyway, and I got the stamps, and so we'll go to Ethiopia on Monday, but in this whole situation, I was thinking, who can I lean on? Who can I trust? Who do I have that I can rely to help me in a difficult situation? And what you're seeing here, this word for believed God is a leaning on, a trusting in relationship. This is not just a, a generic believe. The word here conveys trust. And it's a personal, relational trust. And they were trusting in the personal God that Jonah had been talking about. And they believed that they've offended him. And now what you see here is they're responding with faith. But you see in verse 8, the second half of their response, what does the king say on behalf of the people? Call out to God mightily. Let everyone turn from his evil ways and the violence in his hands. And so what you're seeing here is faith in God and then repentance turning away from their sin. And so Jonah's been preaching, the city is going to be overturned, but it wasn't. You know what was? If you read the, the word where the king says, turn from evil, that's the same word. It refers to turn over, turn around. And so the city wasn't overturned. Their sin was overturned. Their condemnation was overturned. The evil was overturned, not the city. Why? Because they are following God's plan. They were in the word, they heard the word, and they responded with faith and repentance. That is the response. Two sides of the same coin. Faith and repentance always go hand in hand. Repentance is evidenced by faith. True faith is evidenced by repentance. They're, they're, they go together. One coin, which is the response, two sides, faith and repentance. 
And so that's the word that we use a lot, repentance. You know, it's a popular churchy word. But what does it mean? What does repentance actually mean? Well, let me tell you what it doesn't mean. Repentance is not, I'm sorry, I got caught. Not repentance. Repentance is also not trying to improve your behavior or make up for what you did before. No, that's not repentance. Repentance is not doing something good to avoid bad consequences. That's also not repentance. Repentance also is not where we satisfy a sinful urge or desire, and then we put down that sin for a few days, and then in those few days, oh, I've repented. No, you didn't repent. You just satisfied that urge. But when you get hungry again for that, you're going to go right back to it. That's not repentance. Now, this is true for any sin, but it's particularly true with pornography, where you have a man who looks at an image, or women who read something, because it's the same, by the way. Women reading pornography is just as bad as them looking at it. It still stirs sexual lust. Same thing, reading or looking. It's what it does to your mind and your soul. So suppose you have man or woman, and they're in pornography, and then, and then that urge is satisfied. That desire is appeased and satisfied. So you might go a few days and not, and not go back to that pornography. You think, oh, I repented. But then a few days later, the hunger comes back, and what do you do? You go right back into it. That's not repentance. That's just putting it down because you're satisfied, waiting for the next urge to come around, which could be an hour or a few days later or a week later. That's not repentance. What is repentance? The word refers to changing your course. That's what the word means, course correction. It's like if you're in the military and you have a troop that is going in one direction and then the sergeant or officer says, stop and turn around and everyone turns and goes the other direction. That's a repentance. The, the refers to a turning around. And so repentance is an internal change of mind and heart. It's an internal change. It's deep. It's in your heart. A change of heart, a change of mind. And so repentance is experiencing a heart that has been so changed that you see more beauty and more worth in Jesus and that he is worthy of your praise and worthy of your obedience that as you are turning away from that sin, not planning to go back in a few days, but saying, I hate this sin. I love Jesus so much more that this sin is hideous to me and I hate it and I don't ever want to go back there again. That is repentance. It's a change of heart and mind, and it's deep. It's internal. You cannot repent unless you agree with God. You have to agree with Him that you are who He says you are, and who are you, and who am I? Rebels. Sinners. Need is grace. Repentance is admitting, I am the problem. Men was thinking, no, my spouse, my husband's the problem. My husband's job is the problem. My wife is the problem. My kids are the problem. No, my parents are the problem. My school is the problem. My pastor's the problem. Or whatever. The list can go on of people that you look at 
and say it's his or her or whatever, but repentance is being honest and looking in the mirror and saying, no, it's me. It's me. And you beg God to continue to change you. And you submit to Jesus. I mean really submit to him. Rather than trying to use your wisdom to control your life, just rest and trust him. Admit you can't change yourself, that you're powerless to change yourself as much as Jonah was powerless to come out of the pit that he was in. God had to deliver him. The Ninevites were powerless to save themselves. God had to be merciful to them. So repentance is a change, an internal change of heart and mind where we see so much more beauty and value in Jesus and love him. Hearts begin to change and now our desires begin to change and we no longer want that sin. The urges become less and less. The desires are lessened because you have greater desires for Jesus. Luke 3.8 says, Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And so bear good fruit, doing good deeds, behaving well. It's just the external. It starts much deeper. Repenting is the inward change. And it's God's path towards transformation. True repentance. And I'm telling you right now, prayer is critical. A life of experiencing God's presence. As we are daily really praying, what happens in our souls is we desire Jesus more. And he helps us. Is there an area, and I really mean this, and be specific, because we can be so, yeah, I have struggles. No, today, before our God, let's be specific of areas where maybe we need to honestly repent and ask God to help us with areas like anger or anxiety or bitterness or a critical tongue or gossip and slander or drunkenness or envy or greed, or laziness, or lust, or maybe insecurity. And maybe for you, it's an unforgiving spirit, or self-centeredness. Be specific. Write it down. Pray. Repent of it. For real. And the more you love Jesus, the more it's going to fix your life. I mean, I could preach sermons on specific areas, fix this, fix that problem, but honestly, if you get this right, it'll fix your problem. It'll fix it. Because that's what Jesus does. He transforms. And he wants to change your heart. How does he do it? Step one, his message, his word. Step two, our response to him, which is faith and repentance. After that, what happens? What is step three? How does God respond to our response? Step three in transformation plan is God's mercy. God's message, our response, and lastly, God's mercy. You see it in verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, again, they repented, turned away, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. He showed them mercy. And he shows us mercy as well. He transformed them, and he's at work transforming us 
today. God is faithful. He is so good to us. And his love is so extravagant. He doesn't hold any back. He pursues us. He loves us. He does not abandon. And what you see with this mercy that the Ninevites received, it's pointing to fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ and his gospel of grace. That Jesus came to show us mercy and to rescue us from our sin and to change our hearts and give us new ones and be resurrected on the inside and have a passion for him. And it's all through Jesus. And the ultimate message, we're talking about the message, step one, ultimate message is the gospel, that Jesus paid it all, that he endured your judgments on the cross, perfect sacrifice, and offers you forgiveness if you'll repent and turn to him as you respond to him. His spirit opens our eyes and helps us see our need for him and our need for change. And then mercy, you see here, God is God's mercy is available because Jesus paid it all. He's merciful because Jesus already paid the judgment. You know, it's shocking that he would love the Ninevites. It's just unbelievable. But it's shocking that he would love you and me as well. Here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying work harder so God will accept you. That won't work. What I'm saying is Jesus paid the price. Mercy is available because Jesus paid it. If you will simply respond to him, with faith and repentance. So I don't know where you're at today. As, as we kind of wrap things up and get our thoughts around, where are you? And are you a follower? Are you a disciple of Jesus? I don't know. If you're not, you can experience what the Ninevites experience, which is salvation. You know, the best picture of this is baptism. It's a beautiful picture. That's why in a few weeks, on June 13th, we'll have baptisms is because it's a picture of this salvation. When the believer comes up out of the water, it's showing that new life that Christ gives us. The Spirit does this, and so we rely on Him. But the Spirit will be active in your life as you respond to God. If you already are a believer, if you are a disciple of Jesus, then I would encourage you to spend some time this week being honest about areas where you know that you need continuing transformation and sanctification. You know, our church's mission is to glorify God by making and developing disciples. You know, it's all about God's glory. So we have to make new disciples and develop existing ones so that we glorify God. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, you're not a believer, you're not glorifying God, you're glorifying you, yourself, or other things, but you're not glorifying God. And so people who are lost and far from God don't glorify him. But you know what? Believers in Jesus that are messed up, they don't glorify God either. And so what's worse? A lost person who's not glorifying God or a believer who, who has drifted and is really not glorifying God either. What we want as a church is to glorify God by making and developing disciples so that God is glorified. And so wherever you're at today, what you need most is Jesus. Whether you're a believer or not, you need him and his mercy. And it's available and he'll change you if you'll respond to him. But if you're not a believer, you're in a much, much more precarious position because you don't have that forgiveness that's available to you. But you can have it today because God is merciful and he's calling to you today. His love is extravagant. 
Will you please pray with me? Father, this morning we want to say thank you. Thank you for loving us, pursuing us. We are so overwhelmed by your mercy, your love for us. Father, we want to be like Matthew, as you read earlier today, who repented and experienced joy knowing Jesus. We want to be like him. We want to be like the Ninevites that were forgiven. We want to experience transformation. I pray that your spirit will be active today in our hearts and that we will be honest with you and that we would submit to you and then you would then come be merciful to change us. Father, we want to be a church that loves you more than anything else and is zealous for your gospel. I pray that you would continue to work in and through us, for we desire you above all. We pray these things in the name of our King Jesus. Amen.